Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security Cooperation is called to order. Uh, I'm happy to welcome Assistant Secretary Wes Mitchell to discuss U.S. foreign policy in Europe. Um, Mr. Secretary, I really appreciate you coming and looking forward to our, our back and forth. Uh, I would ask consent that my opening, my written opening remarks be just entered in the record. I just want to make a couple quick points. Uh, I'm an accountant, I like data. Uh, there are two relatively big issues that have been brought to the fore in the last uh, 18 months. One relates to NATO's, our NATO partners uh, meeting their 2% uh, commitment. Uh, the question I always had, okay, 2% have a limited number of them actually meeting that. W what does that mean dollar-wise? And we did ask the State Department, and in 2016, uh, that shortfall was about $122 billion worth of defense spending. Now, in 2017, according to testimony, uh, they've increased spending about $14.4 billion. Uh, it's slated to go up another $10 billion in 2018. So now, now the shortfall is about $98 billion. Uh, we're told that over the period from 2019 to 224, another $35.5 billion shortfall will be filled, leaving a $62 billion shortfall eight years after 2016. So it just kind of puts uh, that into perspective in terms of what that actually is. And, and as I've discussed this with our European allies and friends and partners, uh, I always try to make the point that this isn't just President Trump making this point. He's really speaking for the American public. If, if Europe expects America to be steadfast in our relationship, the, the least Europe can do is spend that 2% and you know, contribute uh, their fair share. Uh, the, the other point I want to make is, and the other you know, bone of contention, obviously, is, is trade. Uh, we, we hear you know, the, the massive trade deficits. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is we export, in 2017, we exported America about $528 billion into the EU. We imported $629 billion from the EU, leaving a goods and services trade deficit of about $101 billion. That's about 19% of what we export. Uh, now, I understand that the, the President is trying to reset our trading relationship, shock our European partners into uh, uh, really reducing tariffs. Uh, I think the best term that the President has introduced in this debate is reciprocal treatment. Uh, it'd be great if we could have total reciprocity in our trading relationship with no, 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 no trade barriers, whether tariff or non-tariff barriers. That's a, a worthy goal. Uh, hope we can achieve that goal as quickly as possible. Um, Dr. Mitchell, I also did read your uh, speech to the Heritage Foundation, and just kind of, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but I, I thought it was pretty salient, because I don't think it's included in your testimony, that uh, you said in that speech, coming into 2017, the administration inherited a failed Russian reset, a conflict in Ukraine that had already cost 10,000 lives, a failed red line in Syria, the largest migration wave in recent European history, an EU that was navigating the first formal exit of member state in its history, and an insolvent Iran agreement that had helped enable a scale of Iranian expansion from the Persian Gulf to the borders of Israel not seen since antiquity. Uh, these are some enormous challenges. Uh, we still face them. Uh, new challenges are, are growing every day. This is, you know, I'm 63 years old. I really can't remember a world that seems to be so destabilized. So, so many threats coming from so many di different directions. So I think this will be a, a pretty interesting conversation today. And again, I appreciate your, 
your willingness to testify without turning it over to Ranking Member Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Mitchell, for being uh, with us here today. Uh, as I uh, hope you know, uh, I uh, tell visitors into my office uh, from uh, Europe regularly how uh, lucky we are that you have uh, chosen to take up this very difficult assignment. I want to congratulate you on some recent good news with respect to uh, an agreement between Greece uh, and Macedonia, which hopefully paves the way for Macedonia to join some of the most important uh, European and transatlantic uh, institutions. And once again, I thank you for uh, your service uh, and your willingness to serve. Uh, that being said, um, we had a nominee to be the ambassador to the EU before this committee last week, and uh, it's fairly ridiculous that it took a year and a half to get an ambassador uh, to Brussels. Um, uh, but he characterized the uh, moment that we are in today with respect to the U.S.-Europe relationship as just part of the normal ups and downs in the transatlantic relationship. Um, this simply is not true. Um, the relationship between the United States and Europe is in crisis. It has never been this bad in the post-war era. It is getting worse by the month. And if it collapses, as I would argue it is on pace to do, then the entire world order, based upon a joint U.S.-European drive to spread open economies and participatory democracies to the world, collapses as well. I know this sounds hyperbolic, but I really do think the stakes are this high. Uh, I think the state of the relationship, if it is even a relationship these days, um, is in that bad a state. Uh, and I don't even have time to run through the gauntlet of abuses that this president in a short year and a half has heaped on Europe. But here's just a few. He has unilaterally backed out of the two most important diplomatic achievements between our two continents in the last decade, the Paris Accord and the Iran nuclear agreement. He started a trade war that the chairman referenced with Europe, perceiving our European allies to be global economic adversaries rather than partners. He regularly personally attacks European leaders on Twitter, reserving the most vicious treatment for Germany, the undisputed leader of the EU. He cheered as a candidate and still cheers the breakup of the European Union, parading Nigel Farage around DC like some sort of revolutionary hero. He traffics European white nationalist propaganda through his social media feed, trying to open rather than heal racial and ethnic divides in Europe. And he recently announced that Russia, should rejoin the G7 without even a single consult with our European partners about what message that would send, given the fact that Russians' behavior in the region has gotten worse, not better, since Trump's election. Uh, this has all led uh, one of the greatest friends of the U.S.-Europe uh, relationship, foreign Swedish Foreign Minister Carl Bildt, to say, is Putin interfering and trying to destabilize the policies of the EU? Yes, but Trump at the moment is far worse. The president's hostility towards the EU is making the challenges that we face jointly all the more difficult, from Brexit to the rise of populism, tensions in the Balkans, finding a solution to immigrant flows, countering Russia's energy dominance and interference politically in the region, fighting terrorism. The United States should be standing side by side with our allies in Europe, not trying to break apart this relationship. Um, I hope that you will continue to serve uh, as a bulwark against the worst of these attacks from this president. Um, but you and the other supporters of the U.S.-EU alliance are losing this argument with the, within the administration badly so far. Uh, we are very lucky to have you and many others trying to win that argument, uh, but unfortunately you've come out on the wrong side, and I look forward to exploring some of these topics over the course of this hearing. Uh, thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, 
Dr. West, Dr. West Mitchell is the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Prior to his appointment, Dr. Mitchell co-founded and spent 12 years building the Center for European Policy Analysis. He is the author of numerous articles, reports, and books on transatlantic relations and geopolitics. Dr. Mitchell received his PhD in political science from Freie University in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Assistant Secretary Mitchell, don't be constrained by the five minutes. I mean, give us your full opening statement, then we'll start with questions. Thank you, Senator Johnson and Senator Murphy, uh, members of the committee. I, I appreciate you calling today's hearing. I am very happy to have this opportunity to talk about the strategy that is guiding the administration's approach to Europe and Eurasia. Uh, next year will mark three decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall. We, as we celebrate the triumph of Western democracy over communism, we must remind ourselves that this outcome was not inevitable. It was the product of uh, active, intense, and prolonged effort by the United States and our European allies. I think it's now very clear in retrospect that history did not end in 1989. Uh, today, uh, as uh, both of uh, these senators have mentioned, Europe is once again a theater of serious strategic competition. Europe today faces pressures on multiple fronts, strategic campaigns from Russia and China, record waves of migration, Iranian ambitions in the Mediterranean and Levant, and a crisis of confidence in European institutions. Our Europe strategy begins by acknowledging that America and Europe must take the reality of strategic competition seriously. Our goal is, uh, was outlined by President Trump in Warsaw, and that is to preserve the West. We cannot succeed in that task without Europe which together with the United States is the West and the heart of the free world. Preserving the West begins with strengthening our physical defenses. The United States has demonstrated our resolve by reaffirming our commitment to NATO Article 5 and putting real resources into the defense of Europe. We are providing military assistance to Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, the Baltics, and other European countries. For fiscal years 2018 and 2019, the administration has requested more than $11 billion in new funds to expand the European Deterrence Initiative. Uh, our allies are stepping up. At U.S. urging, since January 2017, every NATO member but one has increased defense spending. The number of allies that will spend 2% on defense by 2024 has tripled, and the number allocating 20% to major equipment has nearly doubled. In that time, the alliance as a whole has raised defense spending by 5.1% or $14.4 billion, and we project a further $10 billion uh, increase this year, the largest such increase in a generation. But material strength is only part of the equation. Taking strategic competition seriously requires that the United States and Europe replenish our shared commitment to the cause of freedom that since antiquity has been the West's foremost gift to the world. Russia and China both represent a coherent model, stability founded on authoritarianism and brute force, harnessed to certain aspects of market competition, and commingled with state-run politicization of the economy. Both Russia and China want to break the West. Russia wants to splinter it, and China wants to supplant it. One place where they are especially aggressive is in Central and Eastern Europe. Our first priority here is to check Russian aggression. 
In recent years, a revanchist Kremlin has attempted to forcefully redraw borders, intimidated and attacked neighbors, launched disinformation and cyber campaigns against the West, and engaged in military buildups on its Western frontiers. We seek a better relationship with Russia, but that can only happen when Russia stops its aggressive behavior. We will not compromise our principles or our allies. As Secretary Pompeo has said, the years of soft policy that enabled Russian aggression are over. We will continue to raise the cost of Russian aggression until President Putin chooses a different path. Since January 2017, we have brought sanctions against 213 Russian individuals and entities. In response to the Skripal attack in the United Kingdom, we helped to organize the largest expulsion of Russian spies in recent history and sent more than 150 intelligence officers back home to Russia. In partnership with UCOM, the State Department is leading the U.S. government's effort to counter Russian disinformation. We continue to demand that the Russian government uphold its international commitments and allow its citizens to ex exercise their fundamental freedoms without fear of retribution. In parallel, we are building up the means of self-defense for the frontier states most directly threatened by Russia militarily, Ukraine and Georgia. We lifted the previous administration's restriction on enhanced defensive assistance and helped both states improve their defensive capabilities. Simultaneously, we are striving to keep Ukraine on the path of reform, most recently by urging its leaders to adopt an anti-corruption court that meets IMF standards and to set gas tariffs to market prices. And we are working to strengthen U.S. political, military, and economic engagement with Georgia. Across the eastern frontier, from the Baltic to the Black Sea and into the heart of the Danubian Basin, we are working to build stronger long-term bulwarks against the Chinese and Russian inroads that weaken our allies' security and undermine their ties to the democratic West. We are working with allies to strengthen the resilience of their political systems and to combat corruption, improve their military readiness, diversify energy supplies through projects like the Southern Gas Corridor, Kirk Island, and Brewa Pipeline, and increase regional coordination through projects like the Three Seas Initiative, Visegrad, and Bucharest 9. Throughout this region, we are animated by the urgent need outlined in the national security strategy to compete for positive influence. Nations here have greater strategic options than in the past. The memory of 1989 is fading. We must be diligent to defend Western principles, but we must also be willing to engage diplomatically much more robustly than we did in the recent past. Criticism bereft of engagement is a recipe for estrangement. We must provide a viable alternative to allies and reach out to them constructively or expect to lose them to rival spheres of influence. Europe's southern frontier, the Mediterranean basin and its littorals, is another point of strategic focus. Rallying our allies to take Europe's southern frontier more seriously will be a major focus of the upcoming NATO summit. We are working with allies to increase and coordinate contributions to operations in the Middle East, secure Europe's borders, get NATO more deeply engaged in the counterterrorism business, and project stability in North Africa and the Middle East. The Eastern Mediterranean poses particular challenges. Russia has increased its naval presence there and is seeking to solidify a sphere of influence. Turkey faces profound external and internal challenges. It is a steadfast partner in defeat ISIS efforts and migration and an indispensable component in counterbalancing Iran. We look forward to working with the newly reelected President Erdogan on these challenges while also making clear that issues in our bilateral relationship need to be resolved. Our immediate concerns are to secure the release of Pastor Andrew Brunson and other unjustly detained U.S. citizens and local embassy staff, 
to prevent Turkey's purchase of the Russian S-400 system and to develop a modus vivendi for our respective forces and local partners in stabilizing northern Syria and preventing ISIS's return. We encourage President Erdogan to immediately implement his pledge to lift Turkey's ongoing state of emergency and to take additional measures to represent the views of all of Turkey's citizens and strengthen Turkey's democracy. In parallel, we are constructing a long-term strategy to bolster the U.S. presence in the Eastern Mediterranean. We are cultivating Greece as an anchor of stability in the Mediterranean and Western Balkans and working to systematically strengthen security and energy cooperation with Cyprus. We are also increasing U.S. engagement in the Western Balkans. Through active U.S. diplomacy and close coordination with the EU, we supported Prime Minister Tsipras and Prime Minister Tsayev in achieving a potentially historic breakthrough in the Greece-Macedonia name dispute. We have opened up communication channels with both Serbia and Kosovo and are promoting reforms in Bosnia-Herzegovina. In all of these areas, anchoring the Western Alliance, securing Central and Eastern Europe, and stabilizing the South, we are committed to finding a common way forward. In the past nine months, I have made 29 visits to European countries and given more than 22 speeches. Through this outreach, I have seen that what unites the West is far greater than what divides us. While strong U.S. positions on Iran, trade, burden sharing, and Nord Stream 2 may not lead to immediate agreement with allies, the long-term costs of ne neglecting these things far outweigh whatever short-term benefits we get from the appearance of political unity today. On all of these fronts, our message is the same. We must act. We can debate, strategize, and coordinate, but we must act. We cannot continue to defer action on things that make the West collectively weaker against serious rivals. Our task is one of strategic renovation, doing the hard work of shoring up and strengthening the West now so that we don't have to later on terms that are much less favorable. As Metternich said, to preserve is to act. I am committed to doing exactly that, and I am convinced that we will succeed with Europe together. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. I'm just going to ask one question, and then I'll turn it over to uh, Ranking Member Murphy. Uh, we, we had an interesting conversation in my office before the hearing here, and I'd asked you previously, you know, to what extent do we, do we know the dollar investment that China is making into, you know, all of Europe, in particular Central Europe? Um, and you actually did give me a figure on that. Now, in your testimony, you mentioned a couple times the, the pressure uh, the influence that both Russia and China are trying to uh, yield within Europe. But we also talked a little bit about hu Hungary. Can you, first of all, tell us how much uh, China is investing, uh, how strategic their investment is, and just give us your thoughts in terms of what's happening in Hungary. Thank you for that question, Senator. The Chinese investment in Central Eastern Europe is serious, it's strategic, and it's growing. Uh, the exact dollar amounts are hard to pin down, but uh, a good estimate is between the uh, 2005 and 2017, People's Republic of China invested more than $24.19 billion in the 16 plus one countries that form Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, to give you a sense of perspective on this, uh, China is the primary uh, financer of a high-speed high high railway link between Budapest and Belgrade that is valued at approximately $3.8 billion alone. Um, as a frame of reference, the United States in OPIC in general uh, overseas uh, is some, somewhere between 40 and $60 billion uh, worldwide. Uh, for Europe and Eurasia, if you're looking at the amount of aid and assistance that we put out, uh, it's something like $1.13 billion total. Uh, w including supplemental funding, uh, excluding Central Asia. 
so I think the scale of what the Chinese are putting into this region is considerable in monetary terms. They're also very strategic with these investments. They use what you could call debt book diplomacy, where they invest in strategic properties and infrastructure on pretty easy terms. Um, and then they wait until countries can't service the debt and they claim the infrastructure. Uh, they're sharpening their outreach in soft power and the creation of Confucius centers. Uh, so they're competing for influence. Uh, and I think from a U.S. and a Western perspective, uh, we have to acknowledge that we have lost a lot of ground in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, 89 is an increasingly distant memory for a lot of people. And one of the most serious objectives that I think we have to have that my team and I are working on this year and into next year uh, is the 30th anniversary of 1989 is a magnificent opportunity for the U.S. through our outreach and public diplomacy and aid to re-engage hearts and minds in that region. Uh, and that's a, an, an endeavor that will take a, a lot of focus and effort, but I look forward to working with this committee to uh, increase the Western and, and, and U.S. presence in Central and Eastern Europe. But again, you, you've encouraged me, and I've made a couple trips on <clears throat> to Serbia and Kosovo, uh, paying attention to them. You know, whether we can actually get the EU to integrate them anytime soon is another, another question, but paying attention and trying to engage. But we also talked a little bit about Hungary and, and, and Poland. I mean, both uh, leaders have come under criticism here, but you have a, uh, you know, from my standpoint, a policy of positive engagement. If that's typifying right, can you just kind of speak to that? Well, I think we have to engage. Uh, Senator, I think we've lost ground in part because our rivals are showing alacrity and creativity, the Russians as well, but in part because of unforced error on our part. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, number, I would just start from zero and say, we, to your point, we did uh, deprioritize Central and Eastern Europe as a strategic theater. Uh, I think we did that starting after 2011 for some very good reasons at the time. Uh, from 2009 onward, we had a reset and a pivot to Asia. Uh, so we were de-emphasizing Central Eastern Europe both militarily and diplomatically. The Russians and Chinese were not. And in many countries in this region, uh, I think you see that the Russians and Chinese have gained considerable political and economic yardage. Uh, I think in the recent past, when the United States has often been harder on our allies, uh, like Hungary or Poland, than we are on Russia through periods like the reset, uh, I think that that has been a mistake. I think it, it created vacuums that others have filled. So in our approach going forward, what we try to do is strike a balance. We have to be clear about our principles and what we stand for. That's who we are. Uh, and we will n never stop being clear about our principles, both publicly and privately. But I think we have to balance that with increased diplomatic engagement. The Chinese and Russians are in these countries on a regular basis at senior levels of government, um, spending lots of money on infrastructure. If we just show up occasionally and we do nothing but criticize, we can expect to lose ground. So I think we have to strike that balance very carefully. And first and foremost, we have to get back in the game and compete for hearts and minds. Thank you. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Listen, it's no secret. I think that our uh, strategy uh, with respect to Europe is a just total debacle. Um, uh, and it's not your fault. Uh, I understand you don't share the views of this president uh, with respect to the attacks that he's launched uh, on Europe or some of the policies he may uh, be implementing uh, towards Russia, but um, you're the only one that we can ask. So um, let me try to get some clarification on what our uh, policy is. Um, let's um, start, with, uh, start with Russia. The president recently announced a new U.S. policy uh, to bring Russia back into the G7. 
reversing the previous policy of requiring Russia to implement the Minsk agreement uh, before being invited back in to join uh, the G7. Um, why did our policy change? Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Senator, and let me answer both the first and second part of it. Uh, first part of it, I'd say on our approach to Europe, I think it's well articulated in the President's Warsaw speech. Uh, and I think his starting point and the starting point of this administration is to say, we're not going to strengthen the West by continuing uh, the polite fiction uh, of some areas of U.S. and European policy that are weakening, weakening us collectively and probably preventing the United States from wanting to stay engaged in Europe long term. So burden sharing, uh, Iran, imbalances in trade, um, Nord Stream 2, all of these have been positions that we've staked out very forcefully because we believe if you don't address those things uh, in the years ahead, the West collectively will be, will be worse off. On the issue of Russia, the administration has been clear that the door to dialogue with Russia is open. Uh, we've stated that repeatedly at various levels. We've opened avenues of communication on Ukraine, on Syria, on cyber. Uh, the, an improvement in the bilateral relationship, however, can only happen when Russia stops its aggressive behavior. Uh, so far, we've been disappointed in the Russian government's unwillingness to accept responsibility for its actions. Uh, with regard to um, upcoming uh, uh, developments vis-a-vis -vis Russia on the G7, the department doesn't has it, have it, we have nothing to announce at this time. Uh, I think what we've been clear on and what I will continue to fight for is an approach to Russia that's open to dialogue but does not sacrifice our principles or our friends. But just to be clear, the president um, expressed his desire for uh, the G7 to bring Russia back in uh, with no preconditions. Um, regardless of what the State Department has to announce, um, you are not in charge of U.S. foreign policy. The president is, and he announced uh, that his desire is to bring Russia back in without preconditions. I, I mean, we all watched him say it on TV. Is that not the president's position? Well, I think that's extrapolating somewhat from the comments that he made. As I understand the president's view of Russia, uh, this is, a, this is uh, the, one of the world's largest nuclear powers. We have to be open to dialogue. Uh, we have to reach out and keep the channels open. But I think this administration in the last year and a half has done more to take a tough stance on Russia uh, than the previous administration did in its first six years in office uh, in a reset that uh, helped pave the way for the Ukraine war. Uh, so I think our, our record on Russia, if you, if you judge this administration by our actions, uh, the stance we've taken on sanctions, 213 individuals and entities in the last year and a half, uh, what we're doing on Nord Stream 2, what we're doing to buck up our allies, I think we have a good record. Um, let me, uh, uh, listen, the administration got dragged kicking and stream, screaming to implement those sanctions by people on this panel, so to suggest that the administration is leading on a set of sanctions that you were forced to put into place by legislation passed by this Congress, um, I, I just... I think that's, I, I, I have great respect for you, uh, Ambassador. I think that's stretching uh, the bounds of, of how this played out. Uh, the president recently tweeted, the people of Germany are turning against their leadership as migration is rocking the already tenuous Berlin coalition. Crime in Germany is way up. Crime in Germany is up 10% since migrants were accepted. Other countries are even worse. Be smart, America. Um, this is pretty exceptional that the president is openly campaigning against the leader of the most important uh, country inside Europe, tweeting uh, that Germany is turning against their leadership. Um, we know that the statistics he references are not true. In fact, crime is down 10 percent, not up 10 percent. Um, but why is the president um, uh, openly trying to undermine 
uh, Chancellor Merkel's political support in Germany? How does that um, support U.S. objectives? Uh, I think the situation with migration uh, in Europe is one that we have to take very seriously. Uh, and in the last uh, few, few months, in Italy, Austria, Germany, France, I think publics in these countries have been very clear uh, that they want, they want stronger borders, uh, they want to protect the nation state. I guess that's not my question. My question is, this is a very personal attack on Chancellor Merkel. He is saying that the people of Germany are turning against Chancellor Merkel and, and using his social media, using his voice to criticize her uh, and to cheer those that are politically opposing her. Um, side by side with an ambassador to Germany who has openly stated he is going to use his position uh, to help um, conservatives across the continent uh, politically. Um, my question is not about our position on migration. My question is why is the president um, weighing in on the political circumstances of the chancellor? Why is he using his uh, voice to try to politically undermine uh, the chancellor. You could disagree with me that you don't think that tweet is doing that, but it certainly sounds when you say that Germany is turning against Angela Merkel that you are trying to undermine the chancellor. Well, I interpreted the president's uh, tweet to be an expression of concern about the state of migration in the Western world uh, generally. Uh, and I think we've been slow to wake up to this challenge. It, it's a divisive issue in a lot of our societies. Uh, I think, uh, as I understand the president's statements on this, we have to take migration seriously. Uh, the, it, migration, uh, irregular migration in Europe is uh, challenging societies at all levels, economically, socially, uh, and it can't be addressed by simply saying that the door is wide open without a discussion, about, a, a serious public policy discussion about how we regulate and, and moderate the, the flow of irregular, irregular migrants. Uh, on Ambassador Grinnell, I think uh, his comments were taken out of context. Uh, he has made clear that he is not endorsing any particular candidate or political party. We have a very robust dialogue with the German government uh, on a lot of areas of the relationship uh, and expect that dialogue to continue. Uh, Ambassador Grinnell has since clarified his comments and noted that it is not U.S. policy to endorse candidates or parties, uh, and he was making general observations in the interview. Um, my focus overall in the relationship with Germany uh, is to uh, increase engagement, uh, in all areas possible. We have a very, a very strong bilateral relationship with Germany. A lot of areas of cooperation in security, counterterrorism, trade. Uh, I take the long view. I think the transatlantic relationship and the U.S.-German relationship have been through a lot of storms in our history. Uh, that should not lull us into complacency. I think we have to be very proactive uh, in building up as much cooperation as possible. Uh, but I think the relationship is a lot more healthy than is often made out in the media. Okay, thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your holding the hearing, uh, and uh, Ambassador Mitchell, good to see you. Uh, three quick questions. First, it has to do with something that might be viewed as more of a U.S. priority than a European priority, but I, I think it's both, and that is how to screen investments. Uh, I understand you talked earlier about the fact that China has invested about $24 billion in Europe uh, since 2001. As you know, we have a CFIUS pro process here in this country, which uh, while imperfect, uh, allows us to screen investments. Uh, the same is not true in, in Europe. I was recently in Europe, and Eastern Europe, talking about a number of issues, including uh, Senator Murphy's and my legislation on disinformation and how we were coordinating with them to push back against Russian disinformation primarily. And this issue came up, and there was actually a, an interest on behalf of some of the countries in working with us to help understand 
how we could come up with a way to view investments from a national security perspective. Uh, so my first question to you is, is, is whether you have worked on that, uh, um, how do you feel about it, and has the State Department done anything to share best practices and exchange information and coordinate efforts with our allies to prevent adversaries from using commercial tools to undermine our national security? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, it's a very timely question. When I was in the Czech Republic last week, uh, we held the, a meeting of the U.S. Uh, Czech Strategic Dialogue, and this was one of the items of discussion. Um, we are working closely through our embassies with uh, Central and Eastern European countries. Uh, there are different ways to go about creating a national security filter. There's different models uh, that can be used. Uh, the point of emphasis in all of them is to find a mechanism by which uh, allied government can uh, draw a differentiation between investments that are purely commercial uh, and market-oriented and those that are uh, animated by or crea could create a pathway to abuse of uh, national security concerns. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we are in active, ongoing dialogue with our allies on that. Uh, in Central Europe proper, it's a particularly important subject, and it's something I've been closely engaged on. Well, good. Well, I encourage you to continue to do that. And for those who are listening who are wondering why this is a big deal for the United States, uh, it's a backdoor to the United States. In other words, if European firms uh, become owned, let's say, by a Chinese company that might have a national security uh, interest, and particularly in obtaining technology in the United States, we then contract with that company in Europe that is now um, not gone through the CFIUS type process with regard to Chinese investment, uh, we could circumvent our process here. So I think it's really important for us uh, as well as for our allies in, in Europe, and I hope you'll continue to work with them on that. I think it's in our interest that they do have a, a screen. Uh, with regard to U.S.-Russian relations, um, you made an interesting point earlier, which is that um, you can look at the rhetoric or you can look at the results. And it is pretty uh, impressive in terms of what this administration has been able to do in terms of pushing back uh, in some very specific areas. The sanctions were talked about, understandably. Congress is a little more forward-leaning on some of those sanctions. But the administration did sign the legislation and has implemented those sanctions. And the sanctions are appropriate as to not just Crimea, uh, and the uh, illegal annexation, but also other issues. Um, and I, I think that's appropriate to keep these sanctions in place. With regard to providing uh, lethal weapons, defensive weapons to uh, the Ukrainians to be able to defend themselves, uh, we worked with the Obama administration for years on that, as you know, was unsuccessful. And initially in the Trump administration, there was uh, some concern, but at, at uh, uh, my recent trip to Ukraine, I was able to see the results, which is that now the Trump administration is providing the Ukrainians the means to defend themselves. And the Javelin missiles being, of course, the, the most striking example of that, but other equipment as well, including anti-sniper uh, packages to be able to push back against what's happening on, on the line of contact where I was able to go uh, over the Easter period. So my question to you is, um, if there is a Russian summit, which it looks like there will be here coming up, uh, do you expect that these sanctions are going to become part of the conversation? I expect they will. And uh, what is your view on that? There's been uh, some criticisms of the way some of these sanctions have been implemented from people who would like to be tougher on, on Russia. I know Russia will push back the other way. Uh, what do you expect will happen at that summit, and what will your, be, what will uh, your advice be? Thank, thanks for the question. Uh, I know there's been a lot of speculation about this, and I would just say that uh, we're going into all aspects of our engagement with uh, the Russian Federation with eyes wide open. We remember the example of reset. Uh, I think we've had two consecutive administrations, it's not even a partisan issue, uh, prior to this administration that started their term with a positive opening to the Russians and that was abused and then ended their term with a regional war. 
uh, that's not something that we're going to uh, replicate. On the issues of uh, issue of sanctions specifically, I've read the legislation very carefully, uh, and CATSA in particular spells out what would be needed in the way of changed Russian behavior in order to see a lifting of sanctions or a softening of sanctions. Uh, that's law. Uh, it's uh, stipulated very specifically. Uh, we will abide by the law as it's been formulated. I think we have to be able to say in our conversations with the Russians what specific actions would be needed to uh, address our concerns, whether it's lifting sanctions or uh, changing the overall temperature in the relationship. And in all of these areas, uh, in the case of Katsa, it's, it's defined very specifically on Ukraine, uh, leaving eastern Ukraine, uh, the matter of Crimea, uh, cyber, uh, what's happening in Syria, I think uh, that's very clearly spelled out, and we will continue to uh, uh, abide, by the, ab abide by the letter and spirit of the law. The, the broader point that you make on Russia, I think, is an important one that, that transcends multiple administrations, uh, and it's this increasing pattern of a Russia that abuses openings early in an administration's term. And we've seen that often enough that I think the U.S. collectively, uh, uh, I think both parties, and certainly this administration, is alive to... Uh, the tendency of Vladimir Putin to abuse uh, one-sided openings. I think the reset was illustrative in this regard. Uh, I remember the open letter uh, that several Central and Eastern European uh, friends of America wrote in the early days of the reset and warned us that if we open this door to one-sided engagement, not only would Putin abuse it, but we would likely have a war on our, on our hands. And that proved si sadly prophetic. Uh, we stepped back on missile defenses for Poland and the Czech Republic. We stepped back on promoting democracy in the post-Soviet space. Uh, and we see the consequences of that. So you had the pivot. You had the reset. We withdrew our, the last U.S. tanks from Europe. And I think that's important to keep in mind um, simply because we had a solid six-year period in the previous administration that I would characterize as the perception of engagement but the reality of disengagement. And I think in this administration, in our first year and a half, we have a very strong track record. Uh, and I think we have exactly the opposite. We're, it's often described as uh, disengagement. I think we're very engaged in Europe right now. Uh, look at what we're doing on EDI. Look at our stance on Nord Stream 2. Look at what we're doing on Iran. Uh, so I think uh, we may not agree with our allies on the tactics on every one of these things, but we are in close dialogue. We're committed to finding a joint way forward, and I think we will. With regard to Ukraine, just for a second, my, my time has expired. I suspect one of the issues we raised at the summit is President Putin asking to make decisions about Ukraine without Ukraine at the table. That certainly has been uh, the, the approach they've taken in the past. Um, again, in your role, I expect you to have strong views on this. Um, how would you advise the president on this issue of Ukraine, and specifically the sanctions uh, and what's going on on the contact line on the eastern border of Ukraine? Well, I'm not going to engage in, in too many hypotheticals. Um, I will say that on Ukraine, we've been very clear in our public messaging, and I think the legislation is clear what specific actions would be needed on the part of the Russians um, in order for us to lift sanctions. Uh, and I think we've shown our resolve in this matter, not least by providing defensive aid uh, to the Ukrainians and to the Georgians. Um, I think, you know, beyond that, uh, our overall mindset has to be that we, we keep the door open to constructive dialogue where there are shared areas of interest. It's increasingly hard to see where there are shared areas of interest to the Russians. But I think we owe it to the American people and to international stability to keep, uh, to keep uh, open to the idea that we can find those areas, particularly in counterterrorism. Uh, but again, I, I won't engage in hypotheticals. I, we'll see where the process leads. But I think we've been very clear about uh, where, where the boundaries are. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate your comments. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Secretary Mitchell for being here today and for all of the good work that you are promoting in Europe. 
In your statement, you say very clearly that we seek a better relationship with Russia, but it can only happen when Russia stops its aggressive behavior. Do you think Russia has stopped its aggressive behavior? No, ma'am. So this week, um, National Security Advisor John Bolton is heading to Moscow to plan a summit with Vladimir Putin here in the United States where President Trump is talking about um, having what appears to be a very positive meeting with Vladimir Putin. What kind of message does that send to our European allies about our willingness to be tough with um, Vladimir Putin? Uh, thanks for the question, ma'am. Uh, you know, our European allies consistently say to us that they want the United States to have a less adversarial relationship uh, with Russia. Uh, I think they see that they see the need to strike the same balance that we see and the, the previous administration saw, a need to strike a balance between engagement where there are shared interests. I'm a skeptic that there are many areas, but we have to be open to that, and balancing that for a, a strong messaging on interests and values. In terms of um, the National Security Advisor's uh, outreach, I call that diplomacy. And what I would say is that whether that leads to a better relationship or even a meeting is up to the Russians. I think we've been publicly clear what the standard is for seeing a change in the relationship with Russia on Syria or on Ukraine. Uh, we've been crystal clear in our messaging on the need for the Russians to stop meddling in our own internal affairs. But well, whether that me, leads Let me to just interrupt you there, because I would agree that, I mean, we may disagree about the motives, but I agree that the actions over the last year and a half have been tough on Russia because of the sanctions that were passed overwhelmingly and by a bipartisan Congress, and that that's been very important. But we have not, there is a difference between what we're doing and what we're hearing out of this White House um, based on Russia. And the concern that I've got is you're, you're talking about Russia needs to stop meddling in our internal um, politics and our internal econ economy, and yet, we haven't heard this president um, even acknowledge that Russia is meddling in and is continuing to meddle in American elections. And there are concerns about what that will mean for the upcoming midterms. So despite the fact that the intelligence community has said that, and I think a number of people within the State Department have acknowledged that, the president hasn't acknowledged that. And, and that's the disconnect that I'm concerned about and about what this kind of a summit, what kind of a message that sends to Russia and whether they will misinterpret what the intent of the United States is. Uh, I understand your question. I would say judge us by our actions. Um, we, our goal at this point is to ensure that any dialogue we do have with the Russians, and it's not yet clear whether there will be one, uh, but to ensure that any, any interactions that we have with the Russians, we're doing so from a position of U.S. strength. Uh, and I think we've accumulated that position of strength and leverage in the past year and a half very well. Um, as you point out, the proof is in the pudding. And so far, we have not seen any actions really taken to address Russia's meddling in the United States other by the president. So I... I 
I look forward to seeing what might come out of that kind of a summit. But I want to switch to NATO because, as um, Senator Murphy pointed out, and you acknowledged, we've made we've seen progress between Greece and Macedonia on the naming issue. And what do you think that means for the potential for Macedonia to join NATO? And are you concerned about the what we're seeing? the demonstrations that we're seeing in both Greece and Macedonia and whether that will um, deter the governments of both of those countries in their resolve on this issue? Well, thank you for that question. It's a critical issue, and uh, I will just say it's uh, making progress on the name dispute has been a major point of focus for our team. Uh, to answer your question directly, I would say, yes, I am concerned. I'm specifically concerned about the potential for Russian meddling. Uh, we saw this with Montenegro. Uh, Russian representatives have been making very threatening statements, uh, and I think there is a high potential, particularly on the Macedonian side, for the Russians to try to interfere with this. We've made clear to the Russians we're watching it closely, and it's not uh, in uh, Moscow's uh, ambit to, to decide Macedonia's future. Uh, we're working together with, uh, to strengthen Ma Macedonian institutions. We have excellent security cooperation with the Macedonians, and I'm in frequent contact with senior leaders there. Also, we know Russian methods. Um, more broadly on your question, uh, the next steps on this are that the Macedonian uh, parliament uh, has, uh, the Macedonian parliament ha has ratified the deal, but it has to be confirmed by a public referendum, and then the parliament has to adopt the necessary amendments by a two-thirds majority. Um, we would then expect to see Greece ratify the agreement only after Macedonia has made the constitutional changes, and then uh, we expect to see NATO extend an invitation to what would be North Macedonia at the summit in July. Uh, we're hopeful that the EU will decide to open uh, accession negotiations. That's much less certain right now than, than the NATO uh, path. Have we, you had a chance to, to talk to the EU about, about that? Yes, have we they, have. We're have in, they given you any indication of what they might do? Uh, we're in frequent dialogue, uh, uh, daily uh, dialogue, with, particularly with the French on this matter. The uh, French have concer some concerns that uh, we're, we're working with them to help understand their concerns and chart a way forward. Uh, I'm optimistic that we will see that. As you know, we're coming up on a council meeting, uh, but I think uh, everyone recognizes that what the Greek and Macedonian leaders have done is truly historic. Uh, and uh, if it is successful, has the potential to be something on the scale of Dayton for its implications for the Balkan Peninsula. And really, I would expect to see a tailwind from that in how we approach Serbia, Kosovo, how we approach uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, and I th and uh, we're committed to using that opening not just on the name issue itself, but to get a ripple effect in other parts of the region. So if there is a summit between Vladimir Putin and President Trump, will you and Secretary Pompeo be advising the president that he should raise the issues of Russian meddling in Greece and Macedonia and in the Balkan region in general as one of the issues for their discussions? The issue of Russian meddling is at the forefront of all interagency discussions about Russia. It's a central reality that we're very focused on, uh, so my short answer to your question would be yes. And are you aware that the president has in any of his conversations with Vladimir Putin raised those concerns? Uh, I'm not aware of the, and we often don't uh, reveal the content of all private diplomatic uh, conversations, but I know the administration has frequently and publicly raised the concern. The president has frequently and publicly raised the concern? The administration. But not the president. Uh, I'd have to review the record, ma'am. I would love to have you review the record and share with this committee any occasions in which the president has raised those concerns publicly. Happy to do so. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. 
as long as we're talking about dialogue, uh, I, I think it's important, and I think we need to do it from a position of strength and resolve. There's no doubt about it. And, and, uh, Dr. Mitchell, I think you're aware uh, Ambassador Huntsman encouraged me to lead a delegation, which Senator Shaheen was going to join as well. I think it was going to be in January 2017. And then, unfortunately, uh, Senator Shaheen was denied entry. Uh, so we, we, we called it off. We weren't going to let the, the Russians play the game. Now, uh, Senator Shelby is going to be leading a delegation next week. And I, I signed on to that. Um, I'm not sure where they're going to let me in. Uh, my plans are still up in the air. I, I want to go, so I, I guess I just encourage you to use whatever contacts. The dialogue is good. I think it should be a goal to improve relations with, you know, a, a power that has 7,000 nuclear weapons that is putting pressure on Eastern Europe and the Baltic states and, and trying to, to gain greater influence. Uh, Dialogue is good, but from a position of strength. So again, I just encourage you to, it, I, I want to go and I want to try and improve those relations, but from a standpoint of strength and resolve. Um, we meet, I think all of us meet frequently with uh, our European partners. I've made more trips to Europe than I probably intended to <clears throat> in uh, 2017. Uh, one of the reasons is, is I want to reaffirm certainly Congresses and our branch of governments, our, our strong, unanimous commitment to those strong strategic alliances with both NATO and the EU. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful in those discussions that people realize that long term, those are strong relationships. Do you get the same sense? I mean, you know, obviously, obviously and again, I, I kind of appreciate your testimony here, by ignoring problems. I'm, I'm not one to ignore problems. I want to get right in. If, if there's conflict involved, fine, but get the problem resolved and move forward in terms of long-term strong relationship. Do you get the sense that that's the attitude as you're dealing with their European partners, that they, they can separate the short-term uh, troubles versus what the long-term uh, outlook is? I do. I, I get the impression in our conversations with uh, members of NATO uh, and the EU, there is a growing realization that history did not take the course that uh, people uh, expected it to take from the vantage point of 1989, uh, that the world is becoming more competitive geopolitically, uh, that the West faces very serious challenges uh, from China uh, and Russia and Iran. And I think the political uh, uh, willingness to engage those uh, uh, challenges has increased. Uh, you know, this is not the first administration to raise uh, the matter of burden sharing or Nord Stream 2. Uh, I think what's changing is both the urgency with which the United States is re raising it, but also there is, it's, I think it's been a wake-up call for Europeans to see things like the Ukraine war on their own doorstep, 10,000 casualties so far, uh, the irregular uh, migration flows as a result of the conflict in Syria. Uh, so ge geopolitics is back. Uh, and on a long-term basis, if we, take a, if we take a long view and we say, uh, in a few years' time, we look back and we're able to say that we uh, increased burden sharing, and Germany in particular uh, met its 2% commitment, uh, that we killed Nord Stream 2, uh, that we got a fairer uh, and more reciprocal playing field in international tr trade and transatlantic trade, uh, and that we got a framework in place for dealing with Iran, I think uh, that would be a pretty good run. I think we can look back and say on that basis, the West as a whole is collectively better off for this strategic competition. None of these things that we're working on in our diplomacy uh, are things that we're approaching from a narrow U.S. self-interest. They are in the American interest, uh, but in most cases, they're things that we have raised uh, repeatedly with European allies in the past and that we want to make headway on. 
And we are making headway, particularly on the burden sharing. Uh, it was interesting when I, when I first joined this committee, uh, I believe Senator Murphy was chairman of, of the subcommittee at that point in time, and we met repeatedly with European partners. And back then, if you remember, the discussion was all about Edward Snowden, uh, Angela Merkel's cell phone, that type of thing. And then Charlie Hebdo happened. And I, I've not heard that since. And it really is the, the serious nature of the threat uh, of terrorists posed to all of our societies and the need for us to maintain strong partnerships and particularly, uh, particularly share the intelligence, which is the first line of, of defense against that. Do you believe that our intelligence gathering and sharing and cooperation is that as strong today or stronger than it certainly was before Charlie Hebdo? Our intelligence and law enforcement cooperation with European countries in a NATO framework, EU framework, and on bilateral bases is exceptionally strong. So again, that's, that's a good positive outlook in terms of what a relationship is. Just talk a little bit about, again, this kind of goes back to a conversation we had in our office. The different approach that both Russia and China use versus the U.S. when it comes to investing in foreign countries. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the Russians and Chinese have done a better job than the West collectively in the last few years uh, integrating matters of commerce and investment into a geopolitical or a strategic vision. Uh, they, the Chinese in particular, tend to view uh, com uh, commercial uh, investments in abroad as a matter of state. Uh, and my perception is that they, the Chinese have tended to approach uh, these questions with a much more long-term filter uh, or framework in mind. Uh, and uh, I think in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, you see the results of that, uh, quiet, um, skillful building up of influence, relationships, and investment over the last several years uh, that the Chinese have undertaken through the 16 plus one and the, and the one belt, one road. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge that these are serious, um, well thought out, well resourced, long term efforts. And we have to be candid about the goal. And the goal is very much to undermine uh, the Western order, both politically and, and economically. Uh, the West, uh, by comparison, I think, has tended to um, segment strategic issues and trade. Uh, I think we've also tended to see or tended to imagine that the institutional enlargements of the immediate post-Cold War period uh, were a straight-line trajectory uh, that was sort of an arc of history or an, or an end of history that implied a certain uh, amount of lassitude on our part. Uh, and I think the events of the last uh, several years have been a real wake-up call that Europe is not a post-geopolitical environment. I, I, think we've, uh, I think we're catching up quickly in understanding the need to compete in that environment, but the, na the message of the national security strategy, uh, first and foremost, is that that is a serious and prolonged strategic competition with big power rivals, that counterterrorism will always be important uh, and a priority, but it will not uh, retain uh, the salience in U.S. foreign policy that it did from 9-11 uh, uh, until a couple of years ago, that we have to shift into a different mindset uh, for the West in general. And that requires some tough choices uh, for our societies. So, so real quick, you know, America, we spend about 1% of our federal budget on, on foreign aid. Uh, in the past, oftentimes with very little, very few strings attached, you're really just showing the compassion of the American public. Uh, China does it, goes about it a little bit differently, don't they? I've, I've certainly heard anecdotal evidence where they will build, let's say, a port, uh, but they make a loan, which the country obviously can't pay off, default in the loan, all of a sudden they own the port. Is that, mm -hmm. is that kind of a st standing operating, standard operating procedure? 
With that, that's a, that's a good generalization. I think that's an accurate characterization. I would just add that the uh, Chinese tend to apply less in the way of obvious near-term strings. There are strings attached. Countries find down the road when they can no longer service the debt uh, that they, chunks of their infrastructure are claimed. Uh, so there, there are strings attached. They're less immediate. And I think the Chinese have also tended to have a more of a relationship-based approach to uh, national elites who in many of these countries are corruptible and corruption remains, uh, I would argue corruption is the single biggest problem even among some of our allied states in Central Europe and the Chinese are very brazen in using those pathways of corruption. Where, where we can't do that. You know, so, yeah, so that's a big difference. It's, it's, I hate to say it, it's a huge advantage they have in terms of making those types of strategic investments with the elite. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Just um, uh, two quick comments on the conversation we're having about Russia, and then I want to change the topic to try to get an, another um, set of questions in before the time is over. Listen, I, I, um, you and I have a, a, a different analysis of what happened in 2013 in Ukraine. Uh, I don't want to litigate it here, but I do think it's a convenient conceit to suggest that uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a consequence of a set of American policies from 2008 to 2013. Um, I can frankly make a very different argument to you that it was in fact the success of the transatlantic relationship uh, that had brought Ukraine to the point at which they were considering joining the European Union that panicked Russia into a mistake that they will pay for for a very long time unless Trump gets his wish and they are brought back into institutions like the G7. Um, and, and I also don't think that there's a lot of evidence that Russia's bad behavior is getting better. In fact, I'd argue that it's getting worse. Um, you've seen significant democratic backsliding in Poland, Hungary, Turkey that has been cheerled by the Russians. Uh, you've seen the United States effectively outsource diplomacy in Syria to the Russians and to the Turks. Big, major new Russian investments in places like the Balkans at levels we did not see during the Obama administration. Um, and the continued partnership between uh, the Russian government and the Trump administration uh, with respect to pushing Trump's agenda. Uh, Schumer shutdown was trending on Twitter um, because of Russian government uh, propagandists uh, who were pushing that storyline in the U.S. media. They have not given up on their attempts to try to influence um, uh, the American political dialogue. Um, so I, I don't think that there is evidence that their bad behavior is getting uh, is lessening. I think, frankly, it's getting worse uh, and worse. Um, let me turn to um, the Iran nuclear agreement um, because I'd love to have you talk to us uh, for a few minutes about what our strategy is. Um, the announcement that we were going to pull out of the agreement was not unexpected. Um, the message has been sent, from what I understand, that we are going to uh, reimpose uh, U.S. sanctions, but also secondary sanctions. Uh, as you know, uh, Chancellor Merkel and others in the European Union are attempting uh, to try to uh, keep uh, the Iranians to their end of the agreement. Uh, which in their mind uh, involves, for instance, uh, keeping Iran's access to uh, banking systems such as the SWIFT system. Um, so I guess my, my question is a bigger one, but it has two parts. Um, what are our plans to continue to roll out um, uh, previous sanctions, such as secondary sanctions, on European companies that are doing business with the Iranians? 
Um, and how on earth do, does the administration plan to do what they said they were going to do, which is put together a series of sanctions that are tougher than the previous set of sanctions? Because right now we seem to be in a world in which uh, the Europeans want no part of that. They want to continue this relationship with Iran to try to get Iran to refrain from restarting their nuclear program. We seem to be a little unclear as to exactly what the pace of the reimposition of the sanctions are. And to most folks, there seems today as if there is absolutely no hope uh, of ever being able to put back together a set of sanctions that were stronger than the ones that we had back in place. Flesh this out a little bit for sure. us. Uh, thank you for those questions. Um, on the first point, I, would, I completely agree with you, and I want to be crystal clear on this in a public setting, that uh, there is one person responsible for the Ukraine war, and that is Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think it is important to acknowledge uh, in recent years U.S. policy, uh, as Secretary Pompeo has said, helped to create an environment, a permissive environment, uh, that aided, uh, indirectly aided many of uh, Putin's aggressive aims which is to say the decisions we make in U.S. policy do help to create a context that our rivals can either exploit or not exploit. Um, I think the reset was, was a big part of that. My point is it, we shouldn't have a double standard uh, where an administration go, can go for six years with a very lopsided courtship of an authoritarian Russia where we were pulling back on our values and our interests, but it's somehow uh, uh, off bounds for this administration to even talk about planning a meeting with the Russians to explore whether it, whether there are points of cooperation. Uh, I take your, your your overall point. Vladimir Putin is the one who was responsible for the Ukraine war. Um, on the issue of I Iran, um, you know the uh, secretary uh, recently uh, outlined our approach. Uh, it I would argue is a much more comprehensive strategy in that in addition to imposing financial penalties, it, it focuses also on engaging the Iranian uh, people, creating a deterrent structure for our regional allies, uh, and uh, dealing with ballistic missiles and malign activity. Uh, it's interesting, unlike our European allies, our Middle Eastern allies were very much not pleased with JCPOA. They saw, uh, both in monetary and in military terms, uh, how JCPOA created an opening for Iran to become more aggressive. So I think the, uh, our focus at this point is working with all, all of our allies, not just in Europe, but in the Middle East and in, in East Asia, to build a comprehensive international framework. Uh, what I have seen in our interactions with the Europeans and talking about uh, Iran, both pre- and post-decision on JCPOA, is I think there is a fair uh, and wide consensus between ourselves and European allies on uh, analysis of the Iranian threat, much more so than there was before we started this process. Um, our European interlocutors acknowledge the need to deal effectively with ballistic missile proliferation, uh, with arming the Houthis and, and bringing uh, Revolutionary Guard into Syria. Uh, President Macron, when he was here, had a four-point formula or four pillars that are very similar to the U.S. approach. On, right, on non, right, I understand that, but you're talking, you're talking a, 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 about non-nuclear activity. I, I, I submit that we can continue to work with Europeans on non-nuclear activity, but let's just, get the, the, let's just get the playing field straight today. The Europeans today are not interested in reimposing new nuclear sanctions on Iran. They are interested in trying to 
in trying to uh, hold together the set of economic benefits that will entice Iran to stay in the nuclear agreement. That is Europe's position today. Well, I think we'll know more about Europe's position in coming days. Um, there is some difference of opinion among different um, members of the E3 and then uh, from the EU. We'll know more about their collective uh, perspective on this when we have more dialogue in the near future. What I would say, though, is I think uh, the self-policing of European companies, the flight of European companies doing business in Iran away from Iran, uh, has uh, changed the equation in the sense that uh, when European leaders look at Iran and they see their own businesses are voluntarily removing themselves from the equation in Iran, uh, I think that creates a different playing field. Yeah, it still doesn't sound to me like a strategy about how you get uh, the Europeans into a fundamentally different place than they are today. I mean, it is true that today the Europeans are trying to, that, that Merkel in particular, are trying to hold this deal uh, together. And there does not seem to me uh, to be any strategy to reverse their position or any short or medium term hope uh, to ultimately rebuild a set of sanctions that were tougher than the ones that we had. I, I, I know that you can hope for that to be true, uh, but part of the reason that most of the foreign policy establishment surrounding the president begged him not to do this was that they knew that that would be a, a likely impossibility. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you. I, I'd like to go back to the Balkans because, um, as you know, Recent electoral issues in Bosnia-Herzegovina have contributed to concerns about stability there. And I wonder if you could talk more specifically about what we're doing to work with the international community to try and encourage a fix to allow elections to move forward. Uh, thank you for that question, Senator. I've been personally very engaged on this issue, and when I was in uh, the Balkans last week, this was a point of discussion. Um, two broad strands to this approach. The first is we're working very closely, particularly with the European Union and other regional allies, uh, to uh, use the small window that we have uh, in the lead-up to the elections to really push for uh, electoral reform. Uh, and I think uh, Kovic in particular will be the key. We're working with the Croats in particular. When I was in Zagreb last week, we believe that they will be the key uh, to formulating uh, the House of Peoples uh, in a way that allows for uh, a stability but also equal representation. Uh, in, in a parallel track with NATO, uh, we have supported the British approach uh, in NATO in the lead-up to the summit uh, of uh, um, lowering some of the conditions uh, with regard to the defense properties so that we can have a clearer path to uh, discussion about NATO prospects, essentially so that Serbska Lisk is not uh, exercising a de facto veto. Uh, I would, on the Balkans in general, I would like to get back to the place we were when Bosnia-Herzegovina was the main and biggest problem of the Balkans, so uh, to deal with the name issue and deal with Serbia-Kosovo and get more attention, uh, attention to Bosnia-Herzegovina, I do think the conditions there create a uh, very attractive uh, opening for the Russians to meddle. Uh, there's no doubt about that, uh, not just in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but as you point out, in Kosovo and Serbia and throughout the Balkans. So uh, I, I think the more we can do to help stabilize the situation, the better. I, I want to turn finally to Turkey because there are a number of issues with Turkey that I know the State Department is very concerned about. And one of those is their continued pursuance of the S-400 air defense system from Russia, mm. which obviously would be in violation of CATSA law. So can you talk about what the administration is doing on that front and 
if Turkey does accept um, delivery of that system, when would we invoke sanctions under CATSA? So thank you for that question. As you know, uh, Senator, I've been very engaged with the Turks on this. Um, it's a very serious matter. Um, we've been clear in all of our communications with the Turkish government that uh, acquisition of the S-400, which we would uh, assess to have occurred when uh, there's actual an actual delivery of the technology, uh, we've been clear on multiple occasions with the highest level of the Turkish government, there will be consequences. Um, first and foremost, what's spelled on, out under CATSA, Section 231, we will abide by that, and when, a, when we determine that a transaction has been made, we will uh, impose sanctions in accordance with uh, CATSA Section 231. We've also been very clear that across the board, an acquisition of S-400 will inevitably uh, affect uh, Turkish, uh, the prospects for Turkish uh, military industrial cooperation with the United States, including F-35. Um, I, ha I think we have to put this in the context that this is a crucial ally and partner. What they're doing for us and with us on defeat ISIS is absolutely essential. We work with them very closely in intelligence and in other areas, but this has the potential to spike the punch. And I think we, we can't be any clearer than, than saying that both privately and publicly, that a decision on S-400 will, will qualitatively change the U.S.-Turkish relationship in a way that would be very difficult to repair. Well, thank you. I think that's an important message for Turkey to hear. As I think you're aware, I've been involved in efforts with Senators Lankford and Tillis to um, try and delay the delivery of F-35s to Turkey because of, uh, primarily because of their holding without any reason uh, American citizens, particularly Pastor Brunson. And I appreciate that at last week's ceremony, with Lockheed Martin on celebrating the partnership with Turkey on the F-35 that the State Department did not send a representative to the ceremony. I think it's, again, part of trying to send a clear message to Turkey about what our views are. And, but I do know that there's some confusion about whether planes have actually been delivered. It's my understanding that DOD officials have said that um, we have already begun delivery of planes um, it's my understanding that that is not the case. Can you confirm for us whether any planes have actually been delivered to Turkey? Uh, as you <clears throat> probably know, this uh, Senator, the, the, in this program, the U.S. maintains custody of aircraft until they're transferred, which normally occurs after a lengthy training process. Uh, in my view, that is helpful for us in these circumstances because it gives us time to continue the messaging. Uh, my understanding is that we're in the training phase. Um, we... Uh, have uh, watched developments on the Hill. We, we know some of what's being considered on, on F-35. We believe that we have existing legal authorities that would allow us to withhold transfer under certain circumstances, including national security concerns. Um, given that, we believe that we continue to have the time and ability to ensure Turkey does not move forward on S-400 uh, before having to take a decision on, on F-35. We're, we're being very clear in our messaging to the Turks that there will be consequences. Beyond that, I would request the ability to discuss it with you in a classified setting. I'm happy to do that. As you know, those, um, the provisions that are in the NDAA and in the appropriations bill are also on track for passage, so there will be additional um, ability to cite the acts of Congress in dealing with Turkey. Can you tell me, to, to the extent that we can make this information public, how many American citizens we believe Turkey may be holding um, in prison? Uh, 
we can confirm uh, dozens of U.S. citizens, mostly U.S. Turkish dual nationals uh, that have been detained or deported since the sta start of the sta state of emergency. You're aware of some of the legal and privacy restrictions on our ability to discuss it in this setting. My understanding is that there are roughly two dozen detainees. Most are detained on criminal charges or foreign terrorist charges. Of that number, I believe four uh, have signed privacy waivers, and we also have three locally employed staff who are being detained. And can you talk about what we're doing to try and address those improper detentions and who we're talking to in the Turkish government and the extent to which we're bringing this up with President Erdogan? The, the subject of uh, these uh, detain, detained citizens, but particularly American citizens, is at the forefront of our agenda with Turkey. Uh, and as important as these other areas are, uh, all the way up to the level of the Secretary and the President, uh, it tops our list when we talk to the Turks. And the point that we've tried to make repeatedly is two things. Number one, Turkey does have legitimate security concerns that need to be addressed, and we've tried to help address those, including in Syria. Uh, in parallel, we've tried to help the Turks understand that if they continue to unjustly detain American citizens, uh, it will uh, significantly alter the tenor of our relationship. We appreciate that Capitol Hill has created leverage for us in some of these areas. We use that leverage to the maximum ability. We explore every inch of leverage that we have on these. We raise it constantly. I'll just use this setting to uh, lay a very strong marker on the case of Andrew Pastor, uh, Pastor Andrew Bunsen uh, in particular. Uh, I've been in close touch with his wife and his family. With his family, we've looked at uh, the uh, arraignment and uh, terms of, of the case that was brought against him in both English and in Turkish. There is nothing there. Uh, this is as manifest, manifest a case of un, unjust detention as we've seen. Uh, there are limits to how far we can go in transactionalizing things with any ally or with any country, uh, but we've examined every option and we message it all the way to the highest levels and we'll continue to do so. Uh, most immediately, we're, we're hoping and expecting to see President Erdogan act on the pledge that he made during the campaign expeditiously to lift the state of emergency, and we're monitoring that very closely. And I know I'm out of time, but if I could, Mr. Chairman, just follow up with another question. Because I know that in the past we have often assumed that after elections it would be easier to deal with President Erdogan and Turkey. That has not necessarily proved to be the case. And is there any reason to believe that he may be more responsive after these elections? Uh it's a good question. Uh, we are. We have consistently said that we respect uh, the uh, democratic uh, desires of the Turkish people. Uh, we were concerned about some irregularities in this election. Uh, we're concerned about the state of human rights. Uh, I think in the period after the election, our approach is going to be to continue to find those areas where we can cooperate and strengthen the relationship. Uh, as I said, Turkey ha is a strong ally and partner that has legitimate security concerns. So we're going to continue to try to strike that balance. I'm not going to try to look in a crystal ball. Uh, I would just say that I think President Erdogan knows what our expectations are about our people, about the weapon systems, about all aspects of the relationship with other allies in the region. Uh, and we're going to use every opening that we have to message that, but also try to get this relationship on a better track. Uh, it, it, Turkey, keeping Turkey on a track towards not only the political West, but the geostrategic West, has to be a, prior, a, a pri prime objective for U.S. strategy um, in the region. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. I, I appreciate you bringing up the subject of Turkey. Um, 
Turkey's treatment of Pastor Brunson is simply outrageous, and I think they need to understand that every member of Congress is highly concerned about it. I appreciate your and Senator Tillis' lead on it. Mr. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I appreciate your strong statement on it as well. Uh, that would be a really big step in terms of helping to improve relationships with a very important country. Uh, my final question, we haven't talked about the Baltic states. Uh, I've, I've always been concerned, you know, particularly after Russia's invasion of Georgia, Crimea, eastern Ukraine, you know, what could be next? Uh, our response now with lethal defense and weaponry into Ukraine uh, hopefully sends a pretty strong signal. Can you just give me your assessment in terms of the dangers of Russian meddling in the Baltics? Uh, I think those dangers are very real, sir, and uh, I think uh, the, Baltics, uh, the, the Baltic states, uh, their security and political relationships with the United States have never been stronger. These are model democracies. Um, really set uh, the standard in the, across the region uh, for strong Atlanticist uh, bulwarks. Uh, I think we have to be diligent in this area, both militarily and with regard to hybrid and cyber threats, and we have strong uh, pathways of co uh, coordination with all three of these countries. Well, Dr. Mitchell, we really do appreciate your service. Um, incredibly important relationships we're dealing with. Uh, in a very unstable environment and world. So, you know, thank you for your service, for your testimony. And with that, the hearing record will remain open for the submission of statements or questions until the close of business on Thursday, June 28th. This hearing is adjourned. Thank you.